something that makes you want to pee. I accidentally, sorry, this is not what you came over here for, but I accidentally ordered 36 bottles of wine in the mail. <laughs> I'll dedicate it as podcast wine. Welcome to the DL Presents Babylon Berlin. This is a deep dive companion podcast of the German television series Babylon Berlin. I'm Dan Fenner, joined as always by a woman that would be just as comfortable on stage wearing a fake mustache at the Mocha Afti Cafe as she would be wearing a leather collar down in the basement, the very lovely Leslie Leak. Each episode of the podcast will cover one episode of the show. We'll give you the download of the plot, characters, and history. But be warned, the DL Presents is not for the languid of mind or the young in age. This podcast and the media it covers is BAFA. By adults for adults. But if you're ready to see Joseph and an angel bone the Virgin Mary, and you're not afraid of some mild cannibalism, then you're ready for the DL. Dirigibles in Liechtenstein. Don your lederhosen. Der Lingenberry. Drink your libations. Delving lightly. Let's dive in. Woo! <sighs> Leslie, I am so excited to talk about Babylon Berlin. This show is fantastic. You recommended it to me. I'm so glad that we started watching it together. I'm so glad that we're doing a podcast about it together. And the thing that sticks out to me most about this show that really drew me in is it is thick and rich like Danny DeVito. Well, I was originally excited to watch this show because I'm fascinated with the time period in which it takes place. But upon watching the very first episode, when we're presented with this sort of vast array of main characters, I immediately became fascinated with their individual backstories, the way that they're presenting different perspectives, but mainly how they're all anti-heroes. They all have their faults, but you can see a piece of yourself in each one of the characters. Three-dimensional characters all around. Amen. Love it. So know that on the outset if you're starting this show. Don't fall in love with any one character too quickly. No one's a good guy. No one's a bad guy. Everyone's questionable, it seems, so far. So this show takes place in an exciting time in Berlin, Germany. It's 1929, which is exactly 10 years after the end of World War I and 10 years before the start of World War II. It's referred to as the Golden Years in Germany. The Golden Twenties, yeah, as opposed to the American Roaring Twenties. Same kind of vibe, though. A lot of opulence, a lot of wealth disparity. And one of the things that sticks out to me about this time period, and certainly the director showed this through the show, is there's an enormous amount of new ideas, new art forms, new technology, new social norms, new gender roles, new forms of government. It's just a tumultuous time of change across the entire European continent, I'm sure. But in this show in particular, in the capital of Germany, it is an undecided time. And it's interesting that the directors intentionally chose to have their show take place in these in-between years for that very reason, because even in Germany, there's not that much exposure to those 20 years between the two world wars. It's almost glossed over, and there's not a lot of media that covers it. So they intentionally chose to have their stories take place in this time. That's something I didn't know until I started researching this show, that German people also, people our age in their 30s in Germany, don't necessarily learn a whole lot about this point in history, maybe because it's overshadowed by bigger events that came after. So in the first episode of the show that we're going to focus on today, there's an enormous amount of complex plots that get set 
in motion. And don't worry, Leslie and I are going to keep you abreast, pun intended, of all of those as the podcast goes on. Immediately in the very first episode, it becomes apparent that this show is really about the characters, their character development, their backstories, and how all their different paths overlay and maybe cross. We'll continue to check in with our main characters as the whole podcast goes on because the directors do that nicely in the show. And we'll also keep a running tally of the number of audible farts that take place in this show. Absolutely. This German television show is bold enough to have on-air farts. They're not just a gag. They're a part of real life. This is a hard-boiled, nitty-gritty, true-to-life, historical fiction show, and people fart. It's not intended to be comedic. There is no comedic relief in the farts. I wish that I could actually fart audibly, but you can ask Cam. They are silent, and they're not even deadly. For the listeners out there, Cam is Leslie's live-in lover, and apparently he has bad hearing. <laughs> and a poor sense of smell. When we finish with the synopsis for episode one, we're going to dive into a little bit of the history. There's a lot going on in episode one, but we've chosen to focus our history portion of the first episode on German history. It provides so much of the important backdrop to the tumultuous time in Berlin where this show takes place. So in the second segment of the podcast, we're going to give a brief overview of German history from its statehood that didn't occur very long ago all the way through the First World War. Leslie, do you hear those drums? Do you know what that means? Is it time to play Peter, Paul, and Mary on vinyl and gobble down some pizza? Ew, no! It's time for the plot synopsis of the DL Presents Babylon Berlin, Episode 1. to our main protagonist, Gary and Rath. The cold opening in this show starts with Gary and Rath in a deep trance. A man named Dr. Schmidt has him perhaps under hypnosis, and he is seeing flashbacks of his own life. But those flashbacks from his own life are also flashes forward for scenes that come in future episodes of the show. So I'm not going to give away too much other than to say this artful opening to the series sets up the sort of dark brooding tone and introduces us first and foremost to our main character, Detective Gary and Rath. Right after the cold open, we see the actual opening credits to the show for the first time. So the visuals of the opening credits reminds me of maybe like a 1989 Berliner in a, a dark and dungeony nightclub tripping his balls off on acid. So it's very colorful and kaleidoscopic but dark. And I like that that kaleidoscopic effect you're describing uh, reminds me of old school film melting in the projector. I don't know. The credits are what they are. They're They're not that interesting. Watch them for the first episode and then you can hit skip credits. Yeah, I really appreciate them, but they do heighten my anxiety. So I sometimes (laughs) skip them. That's all I can say. Then we're introduced to a small group of Russian men who hijack a train traveling from the Soviet Union to Germany carrying pesticides. So we see these men lead the conductors of the train out of the train at gunpoint. They have them strip. They don't their clothing. They hop on the train and seem like they're going to go off on their merry way to do some shady-ass shit. And then this new Russian crew takes the uniforms of the German conductor, jumps on the train, and importantly... They add one more car to the train. Draft horses, you see, pull up this additional car to the back of the train and attach it, something that wasn't intended to be part of this cargo, and the new hijackers continue on toward 
the German border. And that scene just ends. There's not a lot of explanation Mm-mm. given, but that train heist plot will kind of continue as a story arc through the whole first season. It's interesting, too, because they it's essentially the very first scene of the show, if you don't count in the cold open. But they don't kind of bring it full circle until much, much later in the episode. So they start introducing all of these other characters. And I personally, the first time I watched it, especially forgot about the whole sort of initiation of that plot. But I agree with you. It's probably my favorite plot of the series. Oh, one more point to know about this first opening scene. A bit of a spy, I'm going to call him, jumps onto the back of the train as the hijackers are leaving to continue on their course toward Germany. And that man in a later scene We'll see he will send an important telegraph to Berlin to let people know this train is on the way. After the train, we're reintroduced to our main protagonist, Gary and Rath. He's in a bathroom. He's looking down at his hands, which are trembling. He takes some medicine, recollects himself, and then leaves the bathroom, and we're introduced to his partner on the Vice Squad, Bruno Walter. So Gary and Rath busts into what we find out is an adult film shoot. We see that a director and people holding lights are filming a sex scene between what we find out is the Virgin Mary being boned by both Joseph and an angel. Joseph is the father of Jesus. Correct. In this quick scene, we see two very different motivations from Gary and Raff and Bruno Walter. Bruno Walter is the head of the Vice Squad in Berlin. He's street savvy, but he's also a little corrupt. We see him swipe some cash first and foremost, before bothering to put handcuffs on anybody. Now, Gary and Rath, on the other hand, is interested primarily in the kind of porn that they've got in the storage. He rolls up into that place like it's a gosh darn blockbuster and starts opening up cabinets to see what films they have. So their motivations are set from the start, and they're quite different from one another. As we're rounding up the cast and crew from this porn shoot, they notice that they're actually not alone. So there's a hustle bustle behind a curtain, and Bruno and Garion go investigate. They search the building, and they find another man, Franz Krajewski, who Bruno Walter happens to recognize as having been a former cop. Franz runs, and then a chase ensues. So Garion rats are to follow Franz as he runs across rooftops in Berlin. And importantly, Garion loses his gun Fucking noob. Loses his gun while he's spanning the gap between two buildings in pursuit of Franz Krajewski. Eventually, Garion catches up with Franz, who turns around and pulls a gun on Garion. Bruno Walter comes in to save the day, pushing Franz's hand away before he shoots and kills Garion, both simultaneously saving Garion's life and saving Franz Krajewski from being a cop killer. He explains as much to Franz and tells him that from now on, He works for the Vice Squad. He's going to be a bit of an informant on the streets by no choice of his own. Bruno Walter, from now on, I think we might refer to him as either Bruno or Thick Cop. I think of him as the thicker of the two cops. Thick Cop with two Cs. Thick two Cs. Thick. Bruno Walter has some heft and he knows how to use it. He has some heft and some street smarts. (laughs) So let's talk about character here. This is where we get the contrast, in my mind, between the two detectives, let's say, in this show. Yeah, Garion comes off at first as being a total noob. He loses his gun. He's not even interested in rounding up the perps in the adult film shoot. He's clearly kind of single-minded, focused on finding some kind of film or something. Yeah, I don't know if the directors wanted us to believe 
that Garion was maybe just some pretty boy who didn't know mm-hmm. how to do detective work, or if maybe he's more of like a intelligent sort of desk jockey, someone mm-hmm. who knows how to do the research and is meticulous, but perhaps doesn't understand how things operate in the capital. Bruno is an experienced street cop. And he even says as much to Gary and Raph on the roof. He says, in Berlin, it's, I don't know what you do in Cologne, but in Berlin, it's better to pull your gun first. And that's where Gary has to admit, I kind of lost that gun. But you learn something else about Garion, which is that he's brave. He gets held at gunpoint, and he doesn't flinch. And Franz actually attempts to shoot him, and he he ducks away for a moment. But I don't know, the, the actor doesn't present any kind of fear in the character. The other two things to keep in mind for this scene are Bruno Walter's motivations. He pockets some cash early on in the raid of Koenig's porn shoot, And he also pockets the gun, the, quote, toy gun, as well. And he kind of pries the bullet, dislodges the bullet from the roof so as to leave no evidence. I only learned this after doing more research about the time period, 1929 Berlin. It would have been extraordinarily difficult to get a hold of a firearm at that time. The police would have them, but they would all be cataloged and numbered. You know, you couldn't just take home a gun or two when you pleased. So getting another weapon, another handgun from Franz on the roof is something that Bruno stands to benefit from. And you learn one final thing in this scene about Bruno Walter, which is that he has a lot of pride and respects other people who have participated in World War One, but he has no sympathy and no respect for those who've come back with any kind of what he calls tremors or what's been known as shell shock or what we might call PTSD. Exactly. The next scene opens with a young girl in bed. She awakes to find that the pillow next to her is unoccupied. She walks into the bathroom to find her older sister and our main female protagonist, Charlotte Ritter, smoking a cig out the window into the morning sunrise. She is dressed in what we will learn is her going out attire, I guess. A bit of a sequin dress. She looks gorgeous. And in the face, she looks terrible. Her little sister asks, you know, have you been home all night? When do you even sleep? And Charlotte responds with something like, sleep is for the dead, little girl. I'm trying to party it up, baby. So this is the first time that we're introduced to Charlotte. And my first impression of Charlotte is that she's a bad bitch. Not only does she not sleep, she parties. She works hard for her family. She's not afraid to give it a little one-two coochie scrub and head out the door. Yeah, she quickly washes up in the bathroom, changes clothes, and there's a brief interlude with her and her sister, Tony Ritter, where they look out the window at their neighbor. I assume they have frequently watched shave his armpits in the windows, and he's listening to a bit of a song from the time period. Leslie's going to tell us about that at the end of the episode. But those little touches for me are beautiful, the kind of moment between two sisters that I find very real. And the only other important thing I remember from this scene is a man that seems to live in their household because he's sharing the bathroom, and he comes off immediately as a total dick, and I mean that literally. Yeah, so presumably this man, I I think we all come to find out, is her sister-in-law, or at least her sister's baby daddy. He's like, oh, who can even pee with this heart on? Do you want to touch it? (laughs) The answer's no, pal. The answer's fucking no. The get that dick out of no. my face. Move I that only dick get along. dicks in my face if I'm being paid for it. That's not even a reference to the show. That's just Leslie's personal life. <laughs> 
Charlotte leaves the house dressed dapper with a green hat, one of the only big, bright, saturated spots of color that we've seen in the show so far. Her green hat travels across what I presume is Alexander Platz in the city of Berlin towards what is known as the, quote, Red Castle, which is police headquarters. That brief scene, even though it's quick of her traveling across the city, it shows the stark contrast between the working class and those who are absolutely destitute, poor, and out of work on the streets and hanging in the public squares because they have nowhere else to be. That would have been true in the interwar years. There were a lot of injured and indigent men that had come home from war. There wasn't a lot of money, and there certainly weren't a lot of jobs to go around. We'll get into more of that later, but suffice it to say, this first episode makes it clear that some people, Charlotte included, are in dire financial straits. It sort of highlights her character and her motivation here because she and her family are, I would say, almost equally as poor as the people that she sees begging in the street. But when the child comes up to solicit money from her, it's almost, she's got this sense of pride. She's not necessarily better than, but you see that she's dedicated to working hard. So while Charlotte is walking to her job at the police station, we see Garion and Bruno in a car driving from that adult film bust on their way also to the police station. And we learn through their conversation in the car a couple of things. One is that Bruno respects, I think, first and foremost, soldiers from World War One. So he, not rudely, but he sort of questions Garion what sort of infantry, what... What, what kind of regiment what he was regiment in. What regiment he was in in World War One, what his experience was like, and where he served. And then he shares that same information with Garion. And it's almost a... Um, it's a bonding moment. I imagine it's like a, you're a member of the club here. This was so interesting to me on the second watch based on what I know about World War One. Walter Bruno says that he served in both Belgium and France, which would have meant that he was in the portion of the German military that violated Belgium's neutrality. Belgium was a neutral country in the First World War, but Germany, in an effort to attack France along their less defended borders, instead of going straight across the Franco-German border, they went through a neutral country, Belgium, and by violating their neutrality, caused Great Britain, in part, to come into the war, which ultimately sowed the seeds of disaster for Germany. But yeah, the main takeaway is that Bruno has no respect for men who, in his eyes, served dishonorably and came home with sort of mental maladies, things that we would now refer to as PTSD, and perhaps at that time were being referred to as shell shock. We were already introduced to this concept very early in the show. Gary and Rath seems to have these trembling episodes, as did Franz Krajewski, Franz Krajewski, excuse me, on the rooftop chase in the second scene. As Gary and Bruno are in the car ride toward the police station, Charlotte is already there in a large pool of young women who are apparently looking for daily available clerical work at the police station. They're gathered around a grand staircase where a woman eventually comes down to present the available jobs for the day. Notably, one of them are a whole bunch of annulments, paperwork that needs to be done, legal paperwork that needs to be done, presumably for divorces. I feel like the directors have to have included this little note in this show to display one of the themes that you and I are going to come back to a, a bunch of times in this podcast, which is the new changing social order 
of modern 20th century Germany. The fact that women would be divorcing their husbands would have been relatively new at this time, and I feel like in a scene dominated so much by female actresses there, this has to have been on purpose. And we get the impression from Charlotte's introduction that she needs this money. She needs this work. Her mother tells her that they're going to be $20 short if she doesn't bring home 20 marks that day. They're getting kicked out. We're introduced to two new characters here. They don't get their names and they don't get a lot of lines, but we see for the first time Stefan and Reinhold Graf. Stefan is a young man working for the police station, and he notices clearly Charlotte in the crowd of young women looking for work for the day. He tells Reinhold Graf, who is developing crime scene photos and cataloging them to better catch serial killers, more on that later in the podcast, he tells Reinhold Graf to make sure and hire Charlotte, in part, I think, because Charlotte is an attractive young woman and Stefan has an interest. Charlotte gets a job cataloging murder scene photographs so that later these catchphrases or what we would now call search terms can be used to better identify killers with the same M.O. This is important because this is the early start of looking for serial killers. Using data and evidence like this to better track down people based on the way in which they choose to kill people and the type of people that they choose to kill. So my, my favorite part of this scene is when Gary and Bruno walk through the ground floor of the police station. All the women are there trying to get some work, make a little bit of money for themselves. But Gary and Bruno walk through and they fangirl over Bruno. Yeah, all the young women are like, oh, hello, inspector, to our thick cop. Yeah, they fangirl over thick cop, which is hilarious to me. Elsewhere in the police station, we see Bruno interrogating Herr Koenig, who is the director or producer of that biblical pornographic film that we see Bruno and Garyan bust earlier in the series. Sweet, sweet, holy sex. Now, you might think that Bruno is interrogating Koenig about the, the porn ring that he's created for himself. But no, Bruno is interrogating Koenig on Garyan Rath, his new vice partner. It turns out that both Koenig and Garyan hail from Cologne. And they both got to Berlin fairly recently. And at this point, you don't really know why Bruno wants to dig up this dirt on Gary. And it could be just because Garyan's the new kid on the block and Bruno wants to know who he's working with. But it could be that there's some bigger kind of inquisition or curiosity that Bruno has about his new partner. It was a surprise to me that all Bruno seemed to care about was Garyan. Yeah. And we have our theories about that. Yeah, we have our theories. We'll keep them to ourselves for now. <laughs> So after this, there's a very, very brief scene where we see Franz Krajewski visit the same hypnotherapist that we see in that cold open in the beginning of the Ooh, first Dr. episode. Dr. Schmidt. We learn that this is Dr. Schmidt. Krajewski visits him because he wants to resume some therapy that he had previously had with Dr. Schmidt. Dr. Schmidt asks, are you ready to start again with us? And Krajewski is keen to start again, but then Dr. Schmidt asks him if he's still using drugs. And Franz has to admit, well, yes, I'm still addicted to drugs. And the doctor is having none of it. He lays down the law immediately and says, you know the rules. And so far, we're only getting very, very brief snippets of Dr. Schmidt. And he still remains this enigma in the show at this point. What we know about him so far is almost nothing. But his physical appearance shows what I would think were burn marks or scarring across his face. Every single German man of a certain age 
participated in the First World War. So if someone has lesions, burns, scars, or even an amputation, there's an obvious explanation for that. I think that Dr. Schmidt fits into that category. He had some service in the First World War, but at this point in time, we don't quite know what that is. The important info from this scene is that when Franz admits he's still on drugs and is about to be turned away completely by the doctor, he brings up the real reason he's come, which is to say that the porn ring has been busted and that one of the films is missing. And this tells us that Dr. Schmidt is somehow connected to this larger plot. Yeah, I love that this show starts out with a serious interest in a porn film. It doesn't necessarily carry through for the entire series, but... It's a good hook line. What a hook. I want you to know it hooked me in. And if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you got hooked in as well. I love a a juicy, dirty, nasty adult film. Mm -hmm. The more biblical, the better. The more biblical, the better. Yeah, there's not enough Catholic (laughs) porn these days. Who knows? Maybe Maybe we're not just using the right SEO. We're probably not using the right search engine optimization. Yeah. The next scene brings us back to the very top of the episode, where we see the continuing saga of the now hijacked train coming from Russia to Germany. The train is approaching the border, and it has to stop at a train depot to have its cargo and paperwork checked. And the German officers at the train depot just want some routine paperwork to see what's coming across the border. And one of the communist hijackers almost freaks out and starts shooting his way out of the things. Luckily, our main character, blonde hijacker, the actual train conductor, calms his gun for a second and presents the papers to the German border officers. The border officers seem suspect. They're raising a little bit of a stink. They're raising a bit of a stink, and for good reason. Yeah. But before they can start any kind of investigation, a car pulls up with high-ranking military officials from the German military, the Reichswehr. Major General Siegers steps out of the car, demands to know why this train has been halted, goes ahead and signs the paperwork himself to make sure that it can cross the border, and that is that. He essentially pulls rank on the border guards. And I'm not going to lie, upon first seeing General Major Seegers, I'm getting a major, like, Silver Fox vibe. He's chiseled. Meow. Total Silver Fox. Meow, 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 meow. Cannot disagree. <laughs> meow. Wow. <laughs> Those are not sounds that foxes make, by the way. No. Okay. The other important point from this scene is that after the train successfully moves across the border with General Major Seeger's help, that spy I mentioned at the top of the episode uses these sweet hooked shoes to climb a telephone pole and send a clandestine message ahead. The telegraph that was sent from the German border is eventually received in Berlin by Alexei Kartikov, a Russian man who we'll learn later is a, a violinist at the Mocha FD Cafe, and he is also a pro-Trotsky communist Russian. So he's living perhaps in exile or is just still alive because he's not currently in Russia. He is in Berlin. He knows that that train with the secret train car attached has passed the German border and we can't quite tell yet in the scene whether he's pleased by this news or not. But he takes that telegraph and immediately reports to a blonde, short-haired, stark-looking woman to say that, indeed, the train made it across the border. The only important thing that happens in the scene, other than the telegraph information, is that this woman says, I love you. She kisses him. They're clearly involved in some intrigue larger than just a train. Before the scene ends, the camera lingers on a painting of a well-to-do family. 
it's not clear at this point in the plot what that means. But I think just based on the costumes and the the lifestyle difference that we immediately see between Kardakov and this blonde woman that we come to know as Svetlana, there is a stark difference between their background and their lifestyle. Dan, tell me, what's your take on octopus? I would never and have never eaten octopus. I sadly will admit that I have eaten octopus and probably never will again, and not even for reasons that are about to be mentioned. Kind of for a wealth of other reasons, mainly having to do with that they're incredibly smart and endearing creatures. But They are incredibly clever. I would never want to encounter a live octopus, but I don't want to eat a dead octopus either. For those of you who are keen on eating octopus, go ahead and watch this show and then let's Let's reevaluate. So I assume you're insinuating that there's something afoul with the octopus in the Mocha FD Cafe because in the very next scene, we see a frozen tower of octopus tentacles where a chef pulls a very specific block, slices off a bit, and puts it on the griddle to set the scene as two men sit down for drinks and a little chat. Now, if you're in a cafe and you see an ice sculpture filled with octopus guts and you don't immediately think that something is a foul, then you know maybe there's no help. Because that just screams to me, A, class. It's classy. It's avant-garde. It's maybe the thing to do in Berlin, the place to be. But to me, it immediately screams like bad guy from a Bond movie. The Mocha FD Cafe, run by Edgar Kasabian, or the Armenian, is the hippest, hottest, high-class joint in all of Berlin, or at least within the confines of this show. So in this scene, in addition to seeing this ice sculpture filled with octopus guts. We also see very, very briefly our friends Kardakov and Svetlana Svetlana playing in the band, the house band, at the Mocha FD Cafe. And notably, Svetlana is playing the theremin, an instrument we'll talk about a little bit more at the end of the episode today because that would have been a cutting-edge electronic instrument at the time. One more reason to believe that the Mocha FD is the hottest, hippest modern joint in Berlin. In this scene, we're introduced to, I guess, nefarious crime boss, Edgar Kasabian, that others, especially thick cop Walter Bruno, refer to as the Armenian. He comes across as an average white guy to me, but what are you going to do? He's sitting down to have a chat with a nameless, faceless, thick, other organized crime figure, and basically tells him, your brother screwed me on this alcohol deal, so I'm feeding you his tongue in lieu of octopus. This guy, as far as I'm concerned, the man who eats his brother's tongue, never comes back into the plot. This is just character introduction. You know from the get-go that Edgar Kasabian, the Armenian, is number one, snappily dressed. Number two, a handsome and well-put-together man. Number three, a man of rarefied taste. And number four, a cold-blooded killer. Fucking ruthless. Feeding this man his brother's tongue for selling him some less-than liquor. I immediately find the Armenian charming. He's fucking ruthless, but he's like, he's dapper. He's classy. He almost has this like twinkle in his eye, but it's almost like a, it's like a sassy, like, I know something you don't know, which is that I'm literally feeding you your brother's tongue. I feel like there's different factions in the show and they perhaps all start with a C. You got cops, crooks, kids, technically starts with a K. Do it again. Do it again. List them off. So far, we've got cops, kids, criminals, commies, and commanders, all in Babylon, Berlin, episode one. 
Beautiful. But the important part of this scene with Edgar Kasabi and our introduction to the Armenian of the Mocha FD Cafe is that a very special guest is actually waiting on him outside in a car. Is none other than Dr. Schmidt. Outside in the car, the power relationship between this ruthless crime boss that we just met and Dr. Schmidt, who we know very little about, is immediately established. Dr. Schmidt says something along the lines of, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't want to waste any of your time. And this ruthless crime boss, the Armenian, Edward Kasabian, responds by saying, oh, no, don't be silly, of course. As if he owes his total allegiance to Dr. Schmidt. Dr. Schmidt goes on to say that they have a bit of a problem, and that problem is that Koenig is trying to make money on the side with this infamous porn film we keep hearing about and have not yet seen. My eyes have never been so hungry as watching episode one of this show and not getting to see the nitty gritty of what is on this porn film. So the Armenian insinuates that he's going to take care of the situation. And then we switch scenes to Garion sort of sifting through some of this confiscated pornography. And we actually learn a little bit about what your eyes are so hungry to see. In a film canister, he finds this single frame. And we see as he holds it up to the light that there appears to be a man in some kind of BDSM garb. This is some kinky shit right here. It's kinky, and I, I have to admit that I don't know enough about BDSM to use the proper terminology for how he is bound and gagged. But I promise to our listeners that both Leslie and I will delve deep into the world of BDSM just for research for the podcast in order to find out firsthand what this shit is all about. This single film cell or single scene, single shot from a larger film reel shows two women on either side of a man bound and gag, as Leslie mentioned, but his face has been scratched out with some sort of hard implement. We know that this is a scene from the porn film. This is the dirty, raunchy shit that Gary and Rath traveled all the way from Cologne four weeks chasing Koenig to find. This is the hottest boner-inducing shit that Germany's ever seen. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to think of, like, possible porn names for this. I My brain hasn't gone there before, but there are just an infinite number of possibilities for what this porn film could be called. I mean, it's obvious that it's not an actual film. film it's straight-up fucking blackmail. But also, this is, like, way too graphic. But I didn't notice until, like, the third time that I watched it that he's wearing some kind of, like, chastity belt with his flaccid dick hanging out. Did you notice that? No, I didn't notice that. You never get to see this film like close no. up and not for very long but I'm glad that you chose to take advantage of 21st century technology and pause Netflix in order to zoom in whether it be mentally or digitally on the flaccid caged penis of this man in the center of this mysterious film reel bravo Leslie G listeners I want you to know this is the kind of deep diving research that Leslie Leak is capable of she's a meat gazer I think that's Fair to say? You know, I'll label myself as a meat gazer, but I'll tell you right now that I welcome you, Dan, and all of you at home to you yourself take advantage of this technology. You watch this first episode and you pause on this film clip and tell me what you think is hanging out the front of his pants. Get the deets on that dick. Please report back. Email us at thedlpresents at gmail.com. So while Garion is deep in thought about the contents on this single frame, Bruno walks in and kind of lends an olive branch to him and invites Garion out for a beer. Garion is too busy for that. He says he's still got work to do. But he's got a bone to pick with Bruno. He asks him, why did you interrogate Koenig without me? Bruno basically says, oh, I don't know. Sometimes that's better. 
and Garion insists that he will get to interrogate Koenig alone tomorrow. Bruno agrees and leaves him the case file. A little bit of give and take there. I like that Bruno comes off as really tough in this first episode. But even though he's clearly curious, maybe even suspicious of Gary and Rath, he also wants to be on his good side. I thought that that was interesting. I like that. He invites him out for the beer, and then he kind of gives a little ground. He wants to be partners with Gary and Rath, even though on some level he clearly doesn't trust him. This is 100% speculation, but it's my impression in the first episode of Thick Cop is that he's not 100% a dick, like a raging hard-on, but a at the same time, dick. he's a thick dick, but he's not. I like that dick is also a term that in English is used to describe a detective. He is 100% a thick and dick, and I think you're justified in calling him that. He's a thick dick, and at the same time, he's not our villain. Yeah, Bruno's a complex guy, and it only gets more complex as things goes on. Stay tuned. Stay tuned for that. After Garion finally emerges from his endless evening of toiling through porn films and what let's job. face facts, probably rubbing one out in the basement of the police station. For sure. They're not even like erotic porn films no, necessarily. No, no. These are clearly weird men caught in compromising situations, blackmail porn that he's looking for. This is like yeah. revenge porn that he's looking through. Yep. He eventually comes out of the basement of his like bizarre, literal and metaphoric porn basement. And coming up a very cool elevator, he and our female protagonist, Charlotte Ritter, step off of their respective elevator cars at the same time, and they slam into one another, and the two sets of photos scatter on the floor. They immediately try to sift through all of the different photographs that have spilled out on the floor, and they say, this one's yours, no, I think this one might be yours, and I'm going to presume that this is meant to be somewhat comedic, because they're passing back and forth, you know, maimed body parts and somewhat graphic, probably for the time, porn film. And neither one of them seem to be faced. Garion says, well, I hope that you're with homicide, given that you have these photos. And Charlotte, boldly and not to be undone here, replies with, well, I hope you're with Vice Squad, given the nature of the lewd photos she is handing back to Gary and Rath. I like that they meet in this cute, lighthearted kind of way, given how hard-boiled the rest of the episode has been. But there's not a lot of smiling or laughing. Neither one of them blushes at each other. It's not an immediate romance between the two characters. I like that. But I will say, and maybe I'm just biased here, but I sensed a mutual attraction. No, I loved that they, they did not spell out that there was this immediate chemistry. I think Charlotte is a naturally... Um, charming person she's endearing and also she knows what she's doing when she's around men so i think she is charming you nailed it she knows what she's doing around men she is totally unfazed by his attempts to maybe not shame but unnerve her and she is not unnerved not at all and you know it, it is like a will they won't they type of thing there might be chemistry it seems like there is but it's hard to tell because she is good at what she does and that's just who she is she's endearing she's charming they have a moment they go their separate ways charlotte breaks off the conversation pretty quickly too which i like and is another display of utter confidence on charlotte's part she's like okay well have a good afternoon bye she literally just says goodbye goodbye the the short shrift with which the script is written in this show is something that I love about it so much. And if you are watching a foreign language show, so much better that the camera and the live action tell the story rather than the dialogue. There may be romance, but this is not 
They don't belabor the point. If there's romance, it's not, you know, it's not taking up too much time. There's bigger fish to fry. Bigger octopi to fry. Bigger tongues tongues to fry. There's more tongues to devour. There's more chastity belts to flap your dick out of. There's more flaccid cocks and sautéed tongues to get after. Moving right along. All right. The next scene gives a lot of details about Gary and Raph and his backstory, and it's very important But there's not a lot of character building that goes on there. This is another scene where we just learn that Garion has been gone from Cologne for about four weeks. He's been staying in a hotel in Berlin, but his hotel room is no longer available because an enormous amount of workers' party, pro-communist demonstrators, are coming to the city and have already rented the hotel rooms because of a May Day, May 1st protest that is coming up about 48 hours in the future. So Garion knows he needs to find another place to stay, and I mean quick, like tomorrow. He receives a letter at the hotel and opens it. It's from perhaps a lover, perhaps not. She signs the letter Helga. In the letter, she mentions Garion has said he's close to solving the case, presumably the case that we have now just joined him on, so perhaps we're joining him on the final stages of solving it. The woman says that that worries her. We don't know why. She also says that her son, Moritz, says hello. After reading the letter, Garion decides to go out on the town by himself. After turning down Bruno for a beer, he goes out for a drink on the town alone. He goes out to a local bar, and on his way, he looks over at a street lamp and sees this poster that translates to everyone once in Berlin. And for whatever reason, he smiles to himself, goes to the local bar, and decides maybe to let loose for a little bit. More on that poster in the end of the episode. So at the bar, he's, you know, making jokes with a young barmaid. He does this trick where he eats his cigarette and gives her a silly face. And we start to see maybe a different side of Gary and Wrath. A softer side. A softer side. So to this point, he's been presented as extremely uptight. After joking with the barmaid, he goes into the backside of the bar where people are dancing, and it turns out Garyan's got moves. He does. He starts doing these very kind of off-the-wall, really on-the-spur-of-the-moment dances with strangers at the bar. Yeah, total strangers and very literally off-the-wall. He does a little backflip <laughs> off-the-wall there after presumably just one beer. I think we can take it from episode one that Garion is lightweight. He's absolutely a fucking lightweight, but I have to say, A, can relate. And B, this is where I honestly, like, start to like him. Because to this point, he's not all that likable. He's an attractive man. He's obviously going to be the lead character of the show. He's smart. He's intelligent. And all of those things are great qualities and somewhat endearing. But it's here that you see that he's got a personality. You're absolutely right. So in the very final scene of episode one, we see Kartikov and Svetlana go into a printing shop. And we learn that this printing shop is being manned by a group of communists. Pro-Trotsky communists who've been likely exiled from Russia. So they relay whatever message is on this telegram that the train has made it past the German border. So whatever was hooked on to the final car of the train has now safely made its way into Germany. I love that the episode ends with this. It starts with the international intrigue, a train coming from Russia that gets hijacked, and it ends kind of like bookends with these, now we know, pro-Trotsky, anti-Stalin communists operating in Berlin, Germany, something about that train hijacking is good for them. The episode closes and we don't quite know what it is. They don't belabor the point with any bits of, of dialogue that don't make sense. Instead, Kartikov just goes directly to saying, long live Trotsky, 
and down with Stalin. They make it very clear at the end of the episode what kind of communists we're dealing with. Stay tuned for episode two of our podcast, where Leslie will be giving a much more broad overview of the background of the Russian political and historical situation here. I didn't know, up until researching for this show, that there were so many rapid revolutions and turmoil politically in Russia that it makes perfect sense that that would have spilled over the border into Germany at this time. But who knew? So final thoughts on episode one, Babylon Berlin. My final thoughts are that the big characters have already shown up on the scene, and I cannot wait to see how they interplay with one another. We've got partners, Walter Bruno and Gary and Rath, who don't seem to trust each other yet and are certainly not on the same page. But at least Walter wants them to be, or that's how it seems. So in this episode, we're also introduced to Charlotte Ritter, who we think is going to be our female lead for at least the first season. And I immediately find her endearing. I think she's a bad bitch. I think she knows what she's doing around men. And I think she's ambitious. It's not clear what her motivations are yet from episode one. I can't wait to find out. The other people that we meet in episode one is Alexei Kartikov, the violinist in the band, who is sleeping with Svetlana, who we know very little about, and her motivations are still mysterious, just like Charlotte's. I can't wait to see that unfold. The last characters we get introduced to in episode one, though we don't get a lot of information about what they're up to, is Dr. Schmidt and his odd relationship to Edgar Kasabian, the Armenian who seems to run both the criminal element in the show so far and the Mocha FD Cafe. Those are our main characters thus far. Hey, Dan, do you hear that sound? Do you know what that means? Does that mean it's time to open another bottle of wine? Not quite, but it does mean it's time to hijack a German train and take a ride to History Town to figure out what's going on in turn-of-the-century Germany. So Leslie, when I learned about European history in school, what I primarily learned is that there were a lot of cute girls in my high school class. (laughs) I don't remember a single thing about what was going on. And so if you're like me and you don't really know what's going on in European history, a little bit of the backstory that, that lends the backdrop to this show is a bit confusing. When we started watching Babylon Berlin... I felt like I was following the plot just fine on my first watch through, but I couldn't help but have some lingering questions in the back of my mind. Number one, who's running Germany right now? <laughs> I mean, as as like someone who attended public schools in the United States of America lightly, I would say I attended them sparsely. I didn't know a lot about European history, especially in this time period, and I certainly didn't understand the nuance between the different factions and belief systems of people that at least I would consider, well, they're all German. And in the show, I would assume like, you know, the cops are German and these other people are German. Everybody except for Svetlana and Kartikov are are German. I would assume they're all on the same team or that, you know, that's what a fool would be led to believe. When I started digging into it, the history that leads up to this point in time, to 1929, is fascinating, and it makes perfect sense that people are not on the same page. People that are quote-unquote German might not consider themselves, you know, brethren with all their neighbors and all their former friends or colleagues or other students, etc. Part of that, a big part of it, is that Germany as a unified nation, as a unified state, was a super new idea. In 1871, 26 different political entities joined together to become the German Empire, led by William I, 
or Kaiser Wilhelm. He was the king of Prussia and simultaneously now the Kaiser of the German Empire. Kaiser Sose. Kaiser Salsa from Moe's. Kaiser means Caesar or emperor. It's essentially a king. The reason that Kaiser Wilhelm was the leader is that he was the king of Prussia, and Prussia had a highly professionalized military that was just in their traditions. He invested in it. He had full-time soldiers, not just men that got called to arms during a conflict. So in 19, excuse me, in 1870, they had a sound victory over Napoleon III and the French, including capturing his army and, and a ton of men. That really solidified Prussia's dominance amongst the other German states. And the very next year in 1871, on my birthday, January 18th, in the Hall of Mirrors at the Palace of Versailles, the German Empire was declared, essentially. It was just, you know, with a stroke of a pen, I assume. I bet there was some ceremony there. Probably sabered some champagne bottles. Who knows? So I'm guessing that the Prussians decided that now all those nation states were going to be unified under Prussia? Or was there, was there like some democracy about it or? Well, in the mid 1800s, it was a toss up whether it would be Austria or Mm. Prussia that would really be the dominant force amongst the many German states. Mm. And that power struggle ended up with Prussia on top in large part because of a man named Otto von Bismarck, who was a staunch supporter of William I and a very savvy diplomat at the time and the professionalized military that I mentioned earlier. Having a stronger army and proving that in battle against the French, I think rallied support amongst the German people toward Prussia. And Austria actually got left out of the German Empire completely. When I mentioned those 26 political entities that came together, that does not include Austria. They will be annexed into the German you know, experience later on in World War II, but that's a story for another podcast. So you skip forward a couple years, and in 1888, Kaiser Wilhelm I dies. The crown prince, Kaiser Wilhelm II, is a little bit too young. He's like 28 or 29. So his father becomes Kaiser for all of 99 days until he dies of throat cancer. So then you've got a 29-year-old Caesar, a 29-year-old emperor, or you could say a 29-year-old amateur overseeing this now vast European empire of disparate peoples who haven't necessarily 100% coalesced around this idea of German under the thumb of Prussia just yet. I'm seeing so many similarities already to what's happening in the Soviet Union in Russia 20 years later. In the late 1800s, the social democrats that are mentioned in Babylon, Berlin, were already a political force. You could think of them as primarily socialists or socialist-leaning ideas, which would have been at odds with the idea of the Prussian king just ultimately ruling over all of the German people. They were such a thorn in the side of the Kaiser that at one point in time, Otto von Bismarck outlawed that political party. It certainly didn't go away. But during the First World War, communists and socialists were basically asked or told expressly to put their political ideology aside so that the German people could more fully commit all of their unified efforts to the war. And in most cases, that is what they did. Now, if you fast forward to 1919, and Germany has suffered a crushing and crippling defeat, both militarily and financially, those former socialists are hungrier than ever for absolute change. So Geyser Wilhelm is an absolute monarch in the German Empire, basically until war breaks out in the fall of 1914. And then the big shots are being called by the military leadership in the country by necessity at that point. I mean, Kaiser Wilhelm really had no 
combat experience, that's for sure. No wartime experience. Probably for the best that Kaiser Wilhelm wasn't calling the shots. And I know in episode two, you'll be talking about Russia where Tsar Nicholas was unfortunately calling some shots as an amateur in that war. But as you can imagine, by 1918, the home front in Germany was decimated. They had been rationing food for years at this point, and there was starting to be open rebellion. Um, There was a, a revolt a mutiny, you might even call it, among some naval officers in Germany, and that shocked the Kaiser. Germany sued for peace in 1918. Wait, who sued who? I know. Like sued is such a strange sued word. The monarch or the other way around? Imagine that, that like Germany goes up to Judge Judy and is like, look, this war has gone on long enough. We need to sue for peace. Essentially, they presented the Allied powers with a potential peace agreement to end the war, and the Allied powers rejected it out of hand. So once the German population at large got wind of this and knew that military defeat was was coming, that they were no longer going to win this war, something that they had been promised they would win, frankly, from the outset, they were totally prepared for the war when it broke out in 1914. But come 1918, it was clear to anyone who was paying attention they were going to lose. And so the German people started to revolt against the government. Now, after that first attempt at a peaceful end to the war failed, Kaiser Wilhelm abdicated the throne and fled the country to the Netherlands. Hindsight being what it is, don't blame him because look what happened in Russia. When yeah. You stick around and shit gets bad. He definitely made the right move <laughs> by leaving and going to the Netherlands was super smart. He left the country, went to the Netherlands, and then almost a year later, the Treaty of Versailles was signed in France. And that treaty called for Kaiser Wilhelm to face trial for essentially crimes against humanity by starting this war and whatnot. The Netherlands, like the Dutch government said, no, we're not going to comply with that. We're not going to give this guy over because they were neutral throughout the whole war. And they were like, we're not trying to get involved in these affairs. If you want to get him, come get him yourself. And so he kind of got away scot-free. That's when a weaker, I guess you could say thrown together republic form of government was formed and these social democrats took part in that, you know, kind of centrist government and negotiated a peace with the allied powers officially ending World War I. This is something that I think we did actually learn in public school, or at least I did, that the terms of ending the war were terrible for Germany. Germany was blamed for starting the war, blamed for the massive death toll that came along with it, and they were also made to pay economic reparations, which they could not afford at that point in time. And so this new form of government, what later would be called the Weimar Republic, was number one, strapped for cash. Number two, overseeing a nation that was in tatters and wasn't necessarily completely unified even before the war started. And number three, they kind of were the scapegoats for Germany's embarrassing withdrawal from the war. Again, these were people that had been promised year after year that the German empire was so great it would be undefeatable and that they would be calling all of the shots all over Europe, that their empire would be expanding and they would all be enriched as a result. Nothing could have been further from the truth. And a lot of that blame, rightly or wrongly, got put on this new form of government and the social democrats that had ushered it in and capitulated to these horrible terms that the allied powers thrust on them. But then again, what choice did they have? The reason I mention all that is because it sets up nicely some opposing forces that we encounter in the show. Not so directly in episode one, although the seeds have already been planted, but I feel like it's an important thing to know for the entire show going forward, that there are some German people in these interwar years that, number one, believe that Germany has and deserves to have the greatest military on the planet, and number two, that they truly are an empire that should be ruled by an elite class, if not by a Kaiser or king. 
not a bunch of squabbling academics and, and attorneys always constantly arguing about what's right and wrong and what ought to be done this way or that. And also that there are people who have always had socialist leanings, you know, well before the First World War. And now that the war is over, they're able to publicly express that for the first time in a long time. And they want to see a Germany that really is run by the people, the right. working class people. Interesting caveat, though. And, and this will segue into your episode two overview of what's going on in Russia. But in the later years of World War I, Germany made sure that Vladimir Lenin would have safe passage through Germany back to his homeland of Russia on purpose to foment revolution there in hopes that Russia would have to exit the war. And ultimately, that was a success. So a bit of, a bit of tactical maneuvering on Germany's part that ultimately came back to bite them in the butt when socialist and communist ideology was spilling out over the border because, of course, it's always been socialists' goal not just to have a socialist utopia within the borders of one nation, but rather to have a worldwide, global workers' revolt against the capitalist system. And that's something you start to see play out in the streets in this show in Babylon Berlin. I guess what I'm trying to say, the main thrust of what I'm trying to say is that Germany as a nation was a relatively new idea, so it should come as no surprise that there is not an agreed-upon way in which the country ought to be run. There is not an agreed-upon narrative as to how they ought to have left the First World War, and there certainly is not an agreed-upon way in which the current state of affairs in 1929 Germany ought to be run. Uh, I should say that a lot of this information for the background on German history, both German unification and Germany's performance in World War I and the fallout afterwards, got a lot of this information from both Wikipedia and from Dan Carlin's Hardcore History that has an excellent um, six or seven part series on the First World War. Very thorough, really good listen. Um, if you want to sink your teeth into some World War I history, it's a really good listen. Or if you want to fall asleep in the back of the car on a long car ride while Dan listens to this World War One history podcast, that's an option too. If you want to fall asleep in the car to the stories of men being mangled for years and years, then yeah, this is the one for you. Let's talk about tidbits. First episode has a lot of juicy, delicious morsels. Leckerbissen, as the Germans might call it. I've actually only looked that up on the internet and not conferred with any of my German comrades. There were such sweet, tasty morsels in this first episode. And when I, when I first watched the show, we watched it in English dub first with English subtitles. And then upon my second viewing in German with English subtitles, I feel like I really honed in on some sweet details that the directors must have put in on purpose. And they did a wonderful job. I, I want to point out a couple for you. And I know you've got a few for me. Leslie, why don't you go first? So when we're first introduced to Charlotte, our female lead, she's just come in from what we're going to call her night job and is prepping for her day job. And she and her sister, Tony, are just kind of bonding, having a chit chat in the bathroom. And it's kind of a sweet moment. And while Charlotte is getting ready for work, we see um, them look out at their neighbor who's shaving his armpits and listening to a song. It's a real song. So it makes sense um, that they, you know, if these were real people, would have known this song. It was um, a famous song called Dine Algen Seen Magnet, which translates to Your Eyes Are Magnets. Caveat, we don't speak German. Which was composed by a man named Hermann Leopoldi, who was actually Austrian. 
Um, and then the, the lyrics were written by another person. But Leopoldi has a fascinating history. So if you'll indulge me, I'll tell you about him. Oh, I would indulge you anytime. No, 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 no. Okay. Okay. So in Austria, Leopoldi was getting to be like a household name. So again, the song came out in 1926. A decade later, in 1938, shit is starting to get real in Nazi Germany and its surrounding countries. So again, Leopoldi and his wife would be living in Austria, but one day they're headed to Czechoslovakia to a performance that had already been scheduled. So they're on this train heading to Czechoslovakia, and unbeknownst to them, the train also has a bunch of refugees trying to flee Germany. So when they get to the Czech border, the train is turned around. Now all this while, Leopoldi and his wife are reading the writing on the walls and like, we got to get the fuck out of here. So they'd already started their paperwork to immigrate to America. Mm. But before they can kind of get that paperwork finalized, the government, the German government comes knocking on their door, interviews Leopoldi, and he gets thrown in Dachau concentration camp near Munich. That interview went worse than most of my job interviews. And then after Dachau, he was um, moved again to Buchenwald. And that's where kind of things get a little bit interesting. Maybe, you know, not for him, but for us looking back. So while he was in Buchenwald, I'm sure he was going through absolute hell, but he was allowed to keep playing music and composing music. And in fact, a lot of the guards and the commandant of the camp loved his music and encouraged him to play, or maybe I should say permitted him to play. And a lot of camps had orchestras or bands, you know, for better or worse as to what purposes they were serving. You can draw your own conclusions about that. But anyways, in Buchenwald, he, um, Leopoldi, composed a song called Buchenwaldlied. Buchenwaldlied? Caveat again, we don't don't speak German. German. Yeah, so that translates to Buchenwald's song. And the story goes that there was a music contest. Someone entered this song into the contest and it won. The person who entered it was not Leopoldi himself, uh, like higher up, capo. So like a non-Jewish prisoner submitted it um, like as theirs. Anyways, besides the point. So the commandant loved this song. Loved it, loved it, loved it. He would sing it to himself. He would hum it to himself. But funny enough, so the song had all these lyrics that were pretty odd obviously, about the prisoners at the camp remaining hopeful and optimistic and still kind of holding on to the prospect of a richer life. And it had lyrics like, keep pace, comrade, and do not lose courage, for we carry the will to live in our blood and in our hearts, our heart's faith. So despite this being like essentially a prisoner's freedom song, the commandant loves it. And Leopoldi himself, you know, caught on to this and said, the song pleased the camp commander intensely. In his stupidity, he did not see how revolutionary the song actually was. So this story has a happy ending because one year after he's been sent to Buchenwald in so it's 1939 his wife who had already actually immigrated to the United States while he was in the camp was able to send a very large bribe to get him released and he then followed her to America oh nice nice good story happy ending yeah um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the Mocha FT Cafe because it is first of all one of my favorite settings and 
Number two, I found out that it is a real place, or, or at the very least, based on a real place with the same name. So uh, this information comes by way of the Guardian newspaper in an article written by Philip Oderman. Ofterman? Anyway. We don't mo- speak German. <laughs> Caveat, he's English. Um, <laughs> 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 oh, God. The Mocha FD Cafe is named after its owner. He was a Greek-Italian coffee roaster named Giovanni FD Medias. And it's said that on a good day, they could serve 25,000 cups of coffee in Berlin. So the sets for the Mocha FD Cafe, though, that are used in the show are actually filmed inside what used to be a silent theater in the Weisensee district of Berlin. A couple more things about the Mocha FD Cafe. Apparently, the, the real one in Berlin at the time had an elevator that would take people from the first floor up to the real goings-ons in the like club and cafe. And that was a marvel of technology at the time that a lot of German citizens would just come into the door just to ride the elevator. I still, frankly, enjoy riding an elevator. One more thing about the Mocha FD. Sadly, there was not a brothel, officially anyway, inside the building. Though dance licenses were issued to over 400 establishments in Berlin at this time. And it was said, you know, dance halls and dance floors were essentially... You know, a bit of a meat market. They were they were a place where a young girl could go to pick up someone for prostitution. I got a thing or two to tell you about prostitution later Ooh. on. Yeah. You just zip that zipper back up and we'll get back around to it. That Mocha FD Cafe scene is just so rich. Not only are we introduced to the Armenian in that scene, but we also see Svetlana for the first time and Kardikov. They're playing in the band. Svetlana is playing an interesting instrument known as a theremin. The thereminist, the person playing the instrument, never actually touches it. It's an electronic instrument, the first electric instrument that was mass-produced, and it was invented by a Russian man named Leo Theremin. So one hand is used to modulate the frequency of the tone, and then the other hand is used to modulate the amplitude or the volume. With both hands, you can make all sorts of eerie music. Theremins have kind of fallen out of vogue in our day and age, but they're still used sometimes in like haunting soundtracks and things like that. The more interesting part about the instrument is when you dig into the man who invented it, Leon Theremin, for which the instrument is named, he's Russian. And his actual name is Lev Sergeyevich Theremin. And he worked in the Russian military during the First World War. And after the war ended and the Russian Revolution was over, he worked in the IOF Physical Technical Institute in Petrograd, which is now St. Petersburg. He created the first television in Russia, not the first television in the world, but the first one in Russia. And then he toured all of Europe and the United States with the theremin. He eventually patented the theremin after playing with the New York Philharmonic in 1928, and he gave the rights to build it and distribute it to RCA. Now, in the 30s, he was either kidnapped and brought back to Russia or decided to move back to Russia. Either way, he left the United States in 1938 and he was eventually put to work in a secret research laboratory in the Gulag system known as a Sharashka. No, we don't speak Russian. Caveat, we don't speak Russian. <laughs> and there, though, he invented tools of espionage. Like one of them was called the uh, the Buran eavesdropping system. And it was a low-powered infrared beam that you would shine at a glass window 
and you could measure the vibrations of the window and thereby hear any conversations that were going on in that room. And quite famously, the head of Russian intelligence at that time, the predecessor to the KGB, would spy on the French embassy, the British embassy, the American embassy, and he would also spy on Stalin himself using this device invented by Leon Theremin. Another device that he invented at this time is known as a hollow cavity resonator. It's like the precursor technology to RFID tags. It was a small listening device that didn't need any battery, didn't need any power, and unlike a radio transmitter, it wasn't constantly emitting radio frequencies. So the way you would activate it is by beaming a certain radio frequency at this device, and only when you were beaming those radio frequencies at it would it start to vibrate and could pick up the vibrations and small changes in air pressure in the room that it was in, and then would transmit those signals back to you. And then as soon as you stopped hitting it with those radio waves, it would completely turn off. And in that way, it was able to be embedded into a wooden carving of, a, of an eagle let's say, the Great Seal of the United States, and inside of it is this little inert listening device. It was presented to the United States ambassador in Moscow in 1945 in the final weeks of the Second World War, and it sat in his office listening to conversations for seven years. I'm sure he had a security team, you know, sweep this object to make sure it wasn't emitting any signals. But as I mentioned earlier, it doesn't need to emit signal constantly. It doesn't need to be attached to power. It doesn't need a battery. They called that listening device The Thing. And you can find it still in the United States of America at the NSA's Museum of Cryptology. This stuff just blows my mind. Like Leon Theremin came up with some amazing stuff under less than amazing conditions working in a Russian gulag. And like he was contemporaries with Einstein, who was himself an amateur violinist, kind of a musician as well. And that's apparently how they you know, met just crazy stuff. But I say all this to say the Mocha FD Cafe has cutting edge stuff in it. When you see Svetlana playing that instrument, it's not just a weird song that the Armenian hates. It's to show that the Mocha FD Cafe is a hotbed of new art and new expression. As tightly as this show is edited together, I couldn't help but notice in the first episode, there is a scene that I initially thought was a throwaway scene. After Gary and Rath reads the letter from this Helga, and we don't know their relationship, he kind of goes out on his own to get a drink, which is weird because earlier in the scene, he tells Bruno he can't go have a beer with him because he's got work to do. Turns out he goes to a little bar, kind of does a little cigarette trick for the barmaid there, this like super young barmaid. I just figured, okay, that's either some character building for this Garyan guy, so we know he's not just totally straight-laced or what, I don't know. But then you picked up Second Watch, that he sees a little poster that the camera pans over to show you on the streets of Berlin before he goes into the bar. What did you find out about that? So come to find out, the poster translates to something roughly like everyone wants in Berlin, which is like a combination between when in Rome and essentially, you might say colloquially these days, like a YOLO situation. Like you only live once. Wow, this is the original YOLO. This is the OG YOLO. And Everyone Once in Berlin was a, like a tourism slogan that the actual civic leaders in Berlin used to encourage people to visit Berlin, to come as tourists and, you know, simulate the economy. But I think over time, so it was intended as, um, yeah, come, you know, maybe sow your wild oats. Wow, what have a, a little wow. fun lighten up a little bit because even though prostitution was technically illegal at this point in time, it was widely 
known and even advertised that Berlin was the place to be if you wanted to pick up a lady of the night. Berlin was a hot sex tourism spot. It was. It was well known. And even the civic leaders would have these everyone once in Berlin posters that would then illustrate a prostitute underneath them. You can see in the subtitles that it says everyone once in Berlin, but that means nothing to me. Now I know that it means Everyone wants to get their dick wet in Berlin. Absolutely. But I do think you're right. So in this episode, Garion doesn't go visit a prostitute. He goes out to a bar and he lets loose a little bit, uh, maybe taking it for its more literal meaning. That about sums it up for episode one. Thank you for listening to the DL Presents Babylon Berlin. Be sure to listen to episode two, where we'll talk Russian Revolution, followed by German prostitution. That's it for today, folks. Thank you for listening to the DL Presents Babylon Berlin. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning in on. And if you like what you've heard, then tell your friends, tell your enemies, heck, tell your local vice squad. Look for us on social medias, and if you have any comments or want to call us out about something, you can email thedlpresents at gmail.com, which at the time of this recording does not exist. <laughs> that was my-